Good morning. So today we are continuing in our sermon series, Let Your Hands Be Strong. And we are transitioning from looking into the prophecies of Haggai and looking toward the prophecies of Zechariah. Now, Haggai and Zechariah did a great job of kind of tag-teaming their ministry. Um, Their mission for both of them to the people of Judah was basically the same. They were to minister God's encouragement when it came to rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, which had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and to offer the Lord's encouragement when it came to rebuilding their relationship with the Lord God, which they had dismantled themselves. These prophets had a shared purpose to let the people know that God was with them and wanted to strengthen them for the work that he had called them to. But Zechariah's uh, prophetic ministry looks a little different from Haggai's. The Lord gave Zechariah a series of eight visions in one night, and the types of visions that he received are what they call apocalyptic. Now, if you know anything about apocalyptic literature in the Bible, you probably know that, number one, it has to do with momentous and catastrophic events, like exile and the destruction of the temple. And it also involves some pretty strange and often confusing symbols and images. Someone far more observant than I am has pointed out that in apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic words always call us to repentance, while apocalyptic visions are meant to encourage us in hope and in faith. And because of this, apocalyptic messages are always relevant. They are evergreen. The world is not always ending, but God's people on earth are always in need of a call to repentance, and we are always in need of encouragement, hope, and renewed faith. Now, in order to appreciate the message that God has for us in Zechariah, we'll want to learn more about what this message meant to the people to whom it was first intended. So if you're a Gentile Christian, a non-Jewish Christian, you have the profound privilege of being a spiritual descendant of the very people we are reading about this morning. Sheerly by God's grace and mercy, Gentile Christians have been grafted in like a branch to into the Jewish roots of God's family. This means that we are permitted to enter these stories in a uniquely personal way and to receive from them the promises of God. It also means that we will heavily identify with Judah in her faults and her foibles and her sufferings. Now, reading the history of God's chosen people is not for the faint of heart, especially when we see ourselves reflected in these stories. On the one hand, the story of the chosen people of God is a beautiful love story where God faithfully and tenderly and consistently extends his love and his wisdom and his protection to his chosen people in a covenant bond meant to last. 
On the other hand, it is a devastating tragedy as the people of God, generation after generation, seem intent on blowing that all up. As a race, humankind seems to have an enormous capacity and appetite for self-sabotage that is truly heart-wrenching to witness. So in the events leading up to this point in the story, the people of Judah had been wandering further and further away from their covenant relationship with God. Through his prophet Jeremiah, the Lord God had spent four decades pleading earnestly with his people to return to him. By word count, the book of Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible, and it is arguably the most heartbreaking the Holy Spirit said through his prophet Jeremiah, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for my people. But the tenderness fails to call back, call the people back to honoring their covenant, and their behavior becomes more and more erratic, finally ending in God's withdrawal of protection. He allows the Babylonians to invade Judah, to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, and to carry off a portion of the Jewish people into exile. Now, I was curious to see how Jewish scholars interpreted the reasons behind the exile and the destruction of the temple. And there's a contemporary Jewish historian and rabbi, a Chicago native actually, who describes succinctly the violation of God's covenant with Judah, according to the Talmud, which is an ancient rabbinic commentary on the books that we call the Old Testament. Rabbi Beryl Hine identifies three major violations of the covenant with God that led to exile and to the destruction of the temple. And the first was idolatry. Rabbi Hine writes, the Torah, God's word, came to say that we are made in God's image Man has to imitate God. But paganism creates gods in man's image. In all the pagan mythologies, the gods fought among themselves. They killed each other. They stole each other's property and slept with each other's wives. They did terrible things because the mythologies portrayed the God as man. When large segments of the Jewish people succumbed to paganism, they entered the long, slippery slope to all the vices of the pagan gods, which were nothing but the vices of human beings living without responsibility to their higher authority. So the first sin is idolatry, and the second and third covenant violations that Hine describes flow directly from the first. The people began to imitate their pagan gods and indulged in murder and sexual sins. The second sin that caused the destruction of the temple, the Talmud says, was murder. They placed little value on human life. In the Torah, God's word, human life reigns supreme. The instances where human life can be taken are extremely limited. They have to meet certain very exacting standards. In a society where human life is taken very easily, it reflects just how far humanity has strayed from its purpose. And the third sin was sexual immorality. This too is the loss of the understanding of the role of people in the world 
It demonstrates the loss of the understanding of the role of the human body and the necessity to appreciate the grandeur of the inner person, not merely the animalistic outer garment of who we are. So 26 centuries ago, God's people faced the same destructive temptations that you and I do. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their hearts were darkened. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God in whose image they were made for images resembling mortal man, idols that were simply magnifications of the worst of our human impulses. And therefore, God gave them up in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped their own desires instead. The identity of every human being is intrinsically and intricately connected to the identity of the Holy Lord God Almighty. We are created as beautiful, precious children of God, formed to live in love with God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We can't disdain and uncouple ourselves from the God in whose image we are made and degrade ourselves with lesser gods without doing tremendous damage to ourselves and one another. When we walk away from God, we walk a path that ends in our own unmaking. And it is hard to stay in relationship with someone whose very personhood is coming apart like that. A person whose life's pursuit is only their own shifting inner desire is inherently unstable. You cannot build a life with that person. There can be no covenant bond. I want you. I don't want you. Please trust me until I change my mind. I want to be yours. Wait, no, I want to be my own person. This is why the destruction of the temple became inevitable. The temple, that impossibly beautiful building built by Solomon as the sacred place of fellowship between God and his people, was demolished and would not be rebuilt for 70 years. The symbol that lay at the heart of Jewish identity was lost to them. This is one final quote from Rabbi Hein. If the Jewish people did not live like a people representing God to be a kingdom of spiritual leaders and a holy people, of what value is the temple? It was only stones, bricks, and mortar. As spectacular as Solomon's temple was, it was truly nothing more and nothing less than the place where a loving God meets with his beloved people. When the people forsook the God of that temple, it became more like a monument to their dead faith than a place to meet with the living God. As heartbreaking as it must have been to see the Babylonians sacking the temple building and stripping it of its gold and jewels, 
dismantling it stone by stone. The Babylonians were only doing physically what the Jewish people themselves had already done morally and spiritually to their own lives. In forsaking the God in whose image they were made, they lost their dignity, their virtue, their identity, their home, and the pride and joy of their nation. After decades of seeing his beloved people running headlong into murder and degradation, the Lord said, enough. His anger over injustice and sin moved to the fore, and he allowed the Babylonians to sweep into Judah, destroy the temple in Jerusalem, and carry off a chunk of the population to Babylon in exile. This is an apocalyptic, cataclysmic event for the Jewish people. But even in this day of the anger of the Lord, when the perpetrators of violence and degradation are finally held accountable, I was fascinated to read of how gentle this particular exile was in many ways. The Babylonians targeted mainly the ruling classes for exile, leaving most of the population of Judah intact. And while it is hard to overestimate the emotional and cultural impact of being forced to leave your native land behind, the actual living conditions in Babylon for the exiles was pretty good. In fact, when 50 years or so later, the Persians conquered the Babylonians and gave the people of Judah a chance to return home, do you know that most of them opted to stay where they were? They had successfully integrated in their new land. They were doing okay economically. Their sons and daughters had married into local families. And of course, most of them had already demonstrated that they were okay with worshiping pagan gods around them. So when at long last the opportunity to return to Judah arose, a majority of the Jewish people living in Babylon said, no thanks. But the remnant who did return then, I think we can infer, were those who were interested not only in renewing a way of life that they left behind, but they were people whose hearts were open to the Lord that they had previously scorned. They were in a fragile condition but one that moved and motivated them to turn and make the journey back to Judah, to Jerusalem, and to the Lord. And to those who are open-hearted to returning to the Lord, wherever, whenever, however, whomever they are, the Lord is always speaking comfortable words. Chapter 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. With these few words, the Lord is opening up a whole new world, a whole new future of hope 
comfort, assurance, and strength to these downtrodden, discouraged people. Words of comfort are not only meant to console and soothe, although they do do that. Comfortable words strengthen people who are in distress or trouble. You can hear the strength in the root of the word comfort, like fortify, fortress, fortitude. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Apparently, the Hebrew language does not have an equivalent of exclamation points, so the repetition of key phrases has to do the job. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, for people who are suspicious or dismissive of the Lord, maybe that doesn't sound that inviting. Maybe if you don't trust the person, this sounds like a stalemate. I'm not going to return to you until you return to me. And that may have been the folks who are content to stay in Babylon. But for those whose hearts are turning to the Lord, these are strengthening words of comfort. You, you downtrodden, discouraged one. You who are weighed down by an awareness of guilt and shame. You who are even now wondering if there is still hope to be had. To you, these words are a promise. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You have agency in this relationship. You have the dignity of choice. And if it is in your hearts, even a bit the size of a mustard seed, to return to me, says the Lord, you will find me close at hand. Your sins are all cleansed. Horrible sins, terrible sins, all forgiven and forgotten. My heart is open to you, and I am ready and willing to embrace you once again. Even while the Lord was angry with their fathers, um, and even though, like we read in verse 6 here, they did not hear or pay attention, The Lord sent his words and statutes after them to follow them, to make a way for them to return. And if he did that for the sake of the unrepentant, those who were walking away, not listening, how much readier is he to return to those who are returning to him? Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But the Lord doesn't stop with comfortable words. He revealed to his people visions of hopeful, reassuring, strengthening comfort. Beginning at verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, And behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. The phrase I saw in the night indicates that this is not a dream that Zechariah had while he was sleeping, but a vision he saw when he was fully awake. He was supernaturally empowered to see spiritual truths with his physical eyes. So you can picture in your own mind's eye an outdoor scene at night. You're looking down along a glen, which is a narrow valley, partially Obstructing your views are myrtle trees, kind of dense evergreen shrubs. 
and among the trees you see a man mounted on a red horse, and around him are other riders on horses of various colors. What does this mean, you may ask? Good question. What are these, my lord, Zechariah said? And the angel who talked with him, that is, the angel sent to be Zechariah's guide in these visions, said, I will show you what they are. Verse 10, so the man who is standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who is standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. So there is more than one angelic being present with Zechariah. There is the angel assigned to help Zechariah interpret the visions. And then there is the man standing in the valley, mounted on a red horse. And there's reason to believe that the rider on the red horse is probably not a regular angelic messenger. There is such a thing, a regular angelic messenger. Um, but is Jesus himself, in his pre-incarnate form, coming in person to reveal things and to give a message of comfort the man on the red horse then explains that this troop of riders was sent by God to personally investigate earthly matters. As one scholar puts it, these riders represent the omniscience and the omnipotence and the omnipresence of God. They are his eyes and ears on earth, seeing and knowing all things. These messengers of God are freely roaming everywhere. And so their presence challenges any fears that they may have that God is distant or indifferent. He's with them. He's checking things out. They challenge the idea that the enemies of Judah are the ones who are in charge. These riders are potent symbols of God's unhindered reign on earth. And as they ride, they have discovered that all the earth remains at rest. Now, on my first reading of the text, that last bit didn't mean very much to me, that all on the earth, all the earth remained at rest. But it definitely meant something to that angel that was serving as Zechariah's guide. He knew what the writer was talking about, and he burst forth with an anguished question. O oh, Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? You see, Judah had been through almost 70 years at this point, 50 in exile and almost 20 back in Judah, of upheaval, political upheaval bandied and tossed about by political foes. And as we read in verse 15, the Lord had given the enemies of Judah permission to come against them, but then those nations had gone, gone way further than they were supposed to do. They had trespassed beyond the limits that God had set for them. The foreign nations had disobeyed God and harassed Judah unduly. And now these arrogant nations were sitting back in their recliners, swilling beer and gloating. If the enemies of God are at rest, then things are gravely amiss in the world. Zechariah's angel articulates this question then on behalf of those returned from exile, those who are returning to Judah returning to Jerusalem, who are on the road back to God, 
but who are still downtrodden and discouraged and fearful. How long, O Lord, how long? That is the cry of many a troubled heart. When will you have mercy again? It's been so long. Note what the Lord does not say in response to this question. He does not come back with a reminder of all Judah's sins that got them here in the first place. He does not point out how measured and reasonable the consequences were. He doesn't hint that they ought to be grateful for that. Instead, the Lord responds like this in verse 13. The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. All those who turn to the Lord are met with grace and with comfort. And the Lord elaborates, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built and it declares the Lord of hosts and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. You see, the rider on the red horse, Jesus Christ, went on to exercise his authority over the enemies of God on behalf of the people of God by putting to death our enemies. He has put to death our selfish, sinful nature, and he stretches the measuring line of our lives out in preparation to rebuild our broken lives and restore the glorious image of God within us. If you are downtrodden, if you are discouraged, whether you are living in fear of God's anger or living in fear of your own weakness in the face of temptation, return to the Lord and you will find he has already returned to you, bringing grace and comfort with him. Now, every Sunday, at every worship service, the church makes room for us to return to the Lord afresh. After we make confession, the priest stands as a physical icon of Jesus, the rider on the red horse, and he pronounces absolution, that declaration that we are free from guilt by the Lord's mercy. And then after that, the priest offers a sentence directly from Scripture. What the priest says about our sins being forgiven is backed up by words from God's own mouth, from Scripture. And the proper liturgical name for those sentences are the comfortable words. In some churches, the priest might even move out into the congregation as he speaks them to signify how every time we look to the Lord in repentance, we see him drawing near to us. This little moment each Sunday is just one small symbolic reminder of this eternal, evergreen spiritual reality. No matter who you are or what you have done or how long you have been away from the Lord or what you may be afraid of, return to the Lord and he will return to you. Speaking words of grace and comfort.
the Lord does not change. This is not merely a word for the people in the day of Zechariah. This is the word of the Lord Almighty to you and to me today. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.